The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know that I'm a Western theater man. The East seems to get all the attention. People focus on the big battles, Gettysburg, Chancellorsville. Not the smaller or at least less well-known battles out West. Some might say Civil War students sometimes, to paraphrase Robert Frost, laugh the big laugh at the little when the East looks at the West. And to quote Frost, what has the West left to laugh at? And like the actress, exclaim, oh my God, at. The answer, of course, is the Trans-Mississippi. That's what we look down on from the West. Until tonight, when we find out what happened in Civil War, Arkansas, 1863. That's the title of the book by Mark K. Christ. He'll be our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building here in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, but as always, not speaking on behalf of the university or the UNC system or the president of the UNC system, Dr. Tom Ross, who this past week was told his services will not be needed at the end of the next year and he'll be replaced by the Board of Governors with some new president. 
not because he has not towed the line and done everything asked of him, but, well, they won't say why. They're not saying why. But I'll say here on campus there's trepidation, there's fear and trembling. Uh, the, the widespread rumor is that the next system president might end up being someone like uh, perhaps Art Pope, who is former budget director and uh, a conservative uh, ideologue. I don't think he would object to that terminology. Uh, and in terms of higher education, it would be somewhat like putting Ben Butler in charge of the silverware. Uh, it would be time to, uh, from the Spoon's point of view, it would be time to be worried. So we'll see what happens. There's a year to go till that. Plenty of good shows of Civil War Talk Radio until then. Uh, in the meantime, we win our small battles this past uh, vacation, uh, winter break. The powers that be here at East Carolina decided they would claim six classrooms in which history classes have been taught pretty much forever since the building was built and turn them into global classrooms. Not quite sure what they do in the global classroom. I think it's like a sort of high-tech pen pal situation where students meet with people from other countries uh, virtually on, on a screen. But this meant suddenly the department had lost all its classrooms, including our very tiny, tiny seminar room. But there's always an opportunity, and by working with uh, some helpful administrators, not an oxymoron, uh, I was able to get a new room converted into a seminar room. And now, for the first time uh, in forever, the history department has a room for the faculty to meet in. We'd been meeting in classrooms and sitting at desks like children for the last 15 years when we have our, our monthly department meeting. <clears throat> and now, finally, we have a room with tables and actual chairs, and we can perhaps interact in a way that will reflect the dignity of our new surroundings. So in this, my last semester as department chair, I've done one thing to leave my mark on the department. i got to get my colleagues to name that room after me now. That will be the challenge. Well, enough about items here on campus. Let's talk about the Civil War and the shows that we have coming up in the next few weeks and months. Next week, Evan Jones, co-editor of Gateway to the Confederacy, New Perspectives on the Chickamauga and Chattanooga Campaigns, 1862 to 1863, will be our guest. I'm looking forward to talking with him very much. Then in February 2015, on February 4th, Anna Heider and Julia Heider, two of a set of triplets, I believe, will be with us to talk about bad Civil War beards. You asked for it, listeners. I asked if we should do that show. The response was favorable, overwhelmingly favorable, I will say. So if it doesn't go well, I can blame it on you, but... In fact, uh, I expect it to go very well. It should be interesting. On February 11th, David S. Reynolds is the editor of a new collection, Lincoln's Selected Writings. Uh, however questionable the Beard's work may be, you can't go wrong with Lincoln's writings, so that will be interesting. On February 18th, David Powell has a magnificent book on the Battle of Chickamauga. Hold my copy over here. The Chickamauga Campaign. It's called A Mad Irregular Battle from the Crossing of the Tennessee River 
through the second day, August 22nd to September 19, 1863. Uh, it's a hefty book and looks very good indeed. On the 25th, Aaron Astor, who's written about the war, is writing right now about the war in the Cumberland Plateau, will be here, do keeping to the Western Theater. And then we return east, maybe, on March 4th. John Fox has a book on Stewart's ride around McClellan. Uh, I learned today that uh, Captain Fox is an airline pilot and, in fact, may or may not be able to make it that night. The, the schedules are not fully uh, uh, fully known that far in advance, so we'll, we'll play it by ear, but we'll do Stewart's ride uh, this spring semester at some point. After that, Spring break, uh, we'll take some time off, one week, come back on March 18th with Michael Stevenson and his work on the life and death of the soldier. It's a 3D volume produced by the Smithsonian Institute, and that will get us up to uh, up to the middle of the semester. We'll keep you appraised of that on the show, and you can also find out by checking out the Facebook page for Civil War Talk Radio or www.impedimentsofwar.org, produced and maintained by Mark Gaffney. It is, uh, for many years, uh, universally agreed to be the single best website on the entire Internet, and it is uh, still there. I'm looking at it right now, and we're still needing to get updated. I'll get with Mark in the next few days and see if everything's okay and get our spring schedule up there. I may have sent it awry when it should have gone to him. But you can also get news of this on the Facebook page and elsewhere. And, of course, from the site you're listening to right now at uh, Voice America. While you're at Impediments of War, you can donate to the show. There's a donate button uh, through PayPal. You can send me money for books or money for pens and pencils as I look at my desk and think, what office supplies do I need? And as the powers that be in the state get their way, I may need that for a phone. I may need it for a new printer, actually. My printer died this week and uh, discovered it would cost more for a service call than to buy a new one here in the office. And we're ever vigilant with the taxpayer's money. Uh, So I've I've gone several days without killing any trees, printing out random memos, and it's it's making me nervous. My hands are shaking, Uh, palms sweating. I need to print. So looking forward to that new printer. Uh, your money will not go to that. Uh, that actually, they really do need to, to at least fund the ability to print a, an assignment page for the students. So, well, enough chatter on the minor things in life. Let us get back to Civil War, Arkansas, 1863, The Battle for a State. The author is Mark K. Christ. He is the Community Outreach Director for the Arkansas Historic Preservation Program. Uh, He has written uh, other books, edited other books, but this one describes uh, a critical year in the Trans-Mississippi, the campaign in Arkansas in 1863, and uh, I'm happy to have him on the show. Mark, are you there? Yeah. There we go. All right. Ah, uh, Welcome to the show. Mark, uh, Mr. Christ, I believe I checked to make sure I pronounced your name correctly. Did I get that right? That is correct. Thank you. Okay. But if I can call you Mark, please call me Jerry. Sure thing, Jerry. We'll do that. Um, the, uh, the, the first 
question, I guess, uh, start at the beginning, is a, a little bit about what you do, Community Outreach Director for Arkansas Historic Preservation Program. This sounds, uh, well, it sounds like it has something to do with the preservation, public history. What, what, what is this position? Right. Well, the, uh, the, the uh, Arkansas Historic Preservation Program is the State Historic Preservation Office for, for, uh, for the state of Arkansas. And uh, the the section that I, wor- I work in, the community outreach, we uh, we do um, uh, outreach with uh, adults. We do tours and things like that. We have uh, one, one uh, employee who does K through 12 education. We have special projects history, and uh, we we just kind of get to do a lot of the fun stuff of public history in the state. Well, that, that sounds good. How did you get to that position? Well, I, I started just under 25 years ago as the um, uh, public information officer for the agency, and it was right after uh, right after I started that the uh, um, Third Battle of Manassas was fought, and the um, you know the federal government spent hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, uh, preserve some land that, uh, from the Second Manassas Battlefield. There was going to be um, a shopping mall was going to be put on it. So that's when the uh, American uh, Civil War Sites Advisory Commission was created to map uh, battlefields across the country, and uh, it it came to me to uh, do the mapping of the battlefields in in Arkansas. So uh, from there, I've been working on battlefield preservation and uh, specializing in Civil War history uh, ever since. Wow. So... um I noticed again looking at, at the book uh, that got getting that from the back that this series uh, in which the book appears, campaign, Civil War Arkansas: The Battle for a State, uh, is in the Campaigns and Commanders series. Uh, edit the general editors uh, Greg Irwin at Temple, who has mm-hmm. been on the show, and on the advisory board, the first name is uh, Lawrence E. Babbitts, uh, who was on the show last week uh, by former colleague here at East Carolina. Do you ever actually work with the board of advisors or do they, they just pass on the, the manuscript and give it the thumbs up? Is that how that works? Well, I, I worked uh, pretty closely with Greg Irwin uh, uh-huh. throughout. I, I never met, I met any of the other um, board of advisors, but but Greg back, uh, back in the day, back when I got started, was actually a professor at the University of Central Arkansas before he, uh, he, he got the, uh, the job at Temple. So we got to know each other way back then and Kind of, you know, fought some fought some early battles together. Mm. So uh, a good connection to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I started the show with an introduction, which I, I hope you will excuse <laughs> in the interests of uh, trying to pique the listener's interest. Uh, but as a Western theater guy, I know I, I encounter people who. You know, many people, have, of course, heard about uh, the Civil War in the East, but as, as you move beyond the Appalachians, you get uh, you know less public interest. Uh, not so much among the Civil War community, where people are keenly aware of the the important things that happened out west, uh, but but it's it's less well known. And then, and if you just say the West to to non-specialists, they think of California. Uh, <laughs> But the Trans-Mississippi is, for I'll admit, even for me, it's, I mean, I look over across the water and go, well, nothing really critical happened there. Uh, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, it, it, there was really um, a tremendous amount of, thing, of, of uh, military activity that took part on this, uh, this side of the river. Um, 
you know, um, most people don't think beyond Vicksburg, you know, when mm-hmm. thinking of, of the war, but um, in uh, Missouri and, and Arkansas, there were uh, the, the uh, third and fourth largest in amount of military uh, engagements that took place. Only Virginia and, and Tennessee saw more activity than happened in, um, in these two states of the Trans-Mississippi. And it was, um, it was crucial, especially early in the war, you know, the, uh, as you're inferring earlier, the, the Trans-Mississippi is often thought of as a, as a backwater. But uh, in the, especially in the early years of the war, you know, the, the struggle for Missouri, um, you know, Arkansas was right, right there um, at the in beginning of 1862 with the Battle of Pea Ridge. And at the end of 62 with the, uh, the Battle of Prairie Grove, um, there was real, you know, real concern and, and actually actual danger that, uh, you know, Missouri could go, could sway to the Confederate side. So it was uh, strategically very important for the, uh, for the Union war effort to, to retain it as much as with um, Kentucky on the, uh, on the other side of the river. So there's also a, a growing argument in the Civil War community about the importance of guerrilla war. Uh, you know, a lot more has been published about that in the last 10 years than, than the preceding 50. Uh, do you think that it is, is that leading to a similar resurgence in interest in, in the Trans-Mississippi? As far as guerrilla war goes? Uh, yeah, yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. um, Dan, Daniel Sutherland uh, from the University mm-hmm. of Arkansas has uh, written, a, written a great book on, you know, just the overall guerrilla war in the, uh, in the Civil War. But um, Arkansas, Missouri, and the Indian Territory—that was well, as Dan said, it's the, that was the real war in um, in this part of the world. Um, there were, you know, there were a couple, three dozen, you know, major or larger battles, but the uh, the majority of what happened was uh, guerrilla raids coming in, counter guerrilla raids. Uh, we had mountain feds in Arkansas who. Uh, Fought a, a grim battle to the death with uh, with their counterparts on the on the Confederate side, and the um, yeah, the, I think there really is an in, increasing interest in uh, both the the uh, activities of guerrilla war and and the uh, uh, strategic importance that it played in the overall conduct of the war in the Trans Mississippi. Yeah, Dan Sutherland's book has has won a lot of awards. It really has changed uh, the landscape. Now, his argument that, that guerrilla war is actually decisive, uh, some of us, I think, push, would say that might be pushing it a little uh, too far, but certainly in some parts of the country, it, it was, as you say, the real war. It was, it was the only war, and it was decisive in that sense. Well, I want to ask specifically about Arkansas, uh, mm-hmm. obviously, the, the topic of your book. We're going to take a short break first. We'll come back in just a moment. Tonight, we're talking with Mark Christ. He's the author of Civil War, Arkansas, 1863, The Battle for a State. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Mark K. Christ. He's the author of Civil War Arkansas, 1863, The Battle for a State. And we've just been talking in our first segment a little, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit about the importance of the Trans Mississippi uh, Theater in general, Arkansas in particular. The, uh, the the book starts out well. One of the things that got me about the book, Mark, and I wanted to ask you about this for for certain, was the. Uh, the blurb on the back cover, every manuscript gets sent out to reviewers and, and, and uh, to first to manuscript reviewers. Some of them will review it, uh, recommend publication, and you take something out of the review and put it on the back. Other times you send it to specific people, say, can you write something nice? Or you actually get a book review and you pull something out of that. On the back of this one, it says, uh, quote, Civil War, Arkansas, 1863, is pure narrative military history. And that's from the Civil War book review. Was that from an actual book review? As uh, far yeah. as you know? Yes, yes that was. That was, uh, I believe, Lorian Foote, uh, who was then at the University of Central Arkansas, uh, did that review. And I, I apologize for not remembering, but I'll, I'll ask this. Did he say that favorably or, or not be, be, because I, I was going over this with my students in class in a graduate seminar today. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to many people listening to the show, to you and to me, that's a positive statement. Uh, pure narrative military history has valuable place, and we enjoy reading it. To some of our colleagues in the academy, that would be a damning statement. I, I took it as a positive statement, because that's really that's what good. I was was, uh, was going for in writing the mm-hmm. book. Well, it, it 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 does accomplish it. Let me be clear to our listeners about that. It, this is a a really 
readable narrative. Uh, if you're like me and don't know enough about this part of the war, it is easy to follow. It's absorbing. Uh, it. I won't say there are spoilers. It's hard to read anything about the Civil War without, <laughs> and, and, and you know, you know how it's going to end. Uh, but but it's it's fascinating to read from from my point of view about battles that I don't know in the same detail as say, uh, uh, you know, Murfreesboro or, or some other more well known battle. And then you're reading this and thinking, oh, you know, I'm pretty sure the the Yankees win the first time here, but I'm not certain. And and so the, the narrative get, gains even more interest that way. In your first chapter, you you talk about the importance of of Arkansas as, as a state. Uh, so let me push you on that. You you've explained the the importance of Missouri certainly as a critical border state. What about Arkansas itself? Well, Arkansas was the um, um, kind of the the middle ground between, uh, or actually the front lines uh, leading up to. Uh, up to Missouri and, uh, you know, control of the state um, by the Union uh, would would essentially mean, you know, control of, of Missouri outside of the, the, the Bushwhacker uh, fighting. So, um, you know, after the initial uh, battles of 62, there, there was not much of a Union presence in uh, in Arkansas outside of, you know, they had a toehold at uh, Helena on the Mississippi River. So after... Um, um, when '63 started, you know the, uh, the the goal began came to uh, to gain control of the Arkansas River Valley. Um, by by doing that, they would um, they would cut the Trans Mississippi uh, Confederacy in half, and essentially uh, um, force the Confederates into uh, South Arkansas, Missouri, um, south uh, south of the Arkansas River in the Indian Territory. And really uh, blunt uh, their effectiveness as uh, in uh, promoting Confederate um, strategies and goals on this side of the river. So it, it, I mean, the campaign has meaning outside of the locality. That if if you control the Arkansas Valley, then there's no there's no more incursions into Missouri at that point. Uh, with that, with that the exception it. of Price's raid in '64. I guess you have to go around the long way to right. to, to get there at that point. Uh, so, one of the other things that that grabbed me reading in the early pages was uh, General Orders Number Seventeen in uh, in eighteen sixty two. That's a remarkable document. Can you can you say a little bit about that? Right. Well, that that was um, uh, well after after the Battle of um, of, of Pea Ridge. Um, General Earl Van Dorn, who was in in charge of the uh, the Confederate troops on this side of the river, was was ordered to uh, take his army east of the Mississippi to uh, to help uh, uh, efforts in um, uh, western Tennessee. And of course, he got over there too late to uh, participate in the uh, the Battle of Shiloh. But when uh, when Van Dorn went when Van Dorn crossed the uh, the river, he brought pretty much every soldier, every horse, every cannon, every gun, every wagon, every nail, just stripped Arkansas of uh, of all men and material, and uh, you know took them took them to uh, Mississippi and, and Tennessee. So at, at that point, uh, Thomas Heinemann, Thomas Carmichael Heinemann, who was uh, a fire eater uh, uh, before the war, a lawyer out of uh, out of Helena, was sent over to take uh, take 
control in Arkansas, and uh, he got here and realized, you know, that that he had had nothing, you know. So through uh, well, uh, historian Bill Shea uh, said he used means uh, legal, extra legal, and patently illegal. He uh, he built an army out of. Um, out of nothing and a, and a military and uh, industrial base out of nothing, and, uh, which was really a remarkable accomplishment. But as part of his efforts, and this is, this is going on with the uh, with the backdrop of the federal army that had won at Pea Ridge, coming back down into Arkansas and actually threatening uh, Little Rock. Uh, so one of the things he did was he uh, uh, passed this uh, this um, uh, General Order 17, which authorized bands of ten which would, would be little irregular companies that were sent to go out and pick off uh, pickets, uh, shoot at, at pilots on river boats, and just generally uh, try to um, uh, harass the, uh, the federal forces in the state as much as possible, and which you know, they did to uh, varying degrees. But the, the, the bad thing about it was this created kind of the, the kernel of... Uh, of what would become the uh, the various bushwhacker bands that would would basically terrorize the state for the duration of the war. Well, the idea that if if you can just get nine of your buddies together, you qualify as a military unit. No training, no supervision, no nothing. Just as long as you got ten guys, you can start shooting people. Mm-hmm. Ten guys uh, and ten guns. <laughs> yeah, you're you're good to go. That that I mean, it it does help explain some of the the. Uh, you know, chaos that that the Western states fell into uh, after the war or during the war, and then continued after the war with the guerrillas working there. Well, there are regular battles as well. The um, uh, the one you describe uh, first in 1863 is Battle of Arkansas Post. That it certainly sounds like a strategic place. Even the name makes it sound like uh, that must be the key to the state. Uh, but apparently, people recognized that 300 years ago that that was a key position. Right. Yeah. Uh, Arkansas Post is the uh, earliest European settlement in the state. Um, it was uh, French, Spanish. Eventually, became American after the Louisiana Purchase. And it's it's located basically on the on the first high ground, if you can call it that, uh, in uh, the the Arkansas River Valley as you come off of the the Mississippi. So it's. If if a federal army wants to march uh, westward from the Mississippi, following the the valley, they're going to have to go by that. the The description, the map you have, shows it's a, the Confederates built a fort on a bend there, and they've got uh, rifle pits and so on. And as I was first reading, I thought, oh well, they picked a good spot, you know, high ground, have to go there. But then several you have several quotes from people who say this was actually pretty much the worst spot along the river to defend. Why was that? Well, it, um, in, in part, it was because of that that bend in the river. Um, if if you were to um, get your your troops off on the opposite side of the river, you could actually uh, locate forces across from from uh, Arkansas Post, across from what, what Fort Hindman, which was their major fortification there. And uh, uh, pour in fire from uh, uh, from the side and from from behind the uh, the Confederate lines, which actually uh, happened during the uh, during the battle. Uh, it also uh, because of the nature of the river there, you know, it was uh, uh, a fairly deep uh, deep area. It was uh, susceptible to uh, attack by by gunboats, which happened in a, in a major way in the uh, the Battle of Arkansas Post. 
So why why did the Confederates choose that? Well, the um, the the orders for the um, for it was just to uh, to fortify the high ground in the lower uh, Arkansas River Valley. And if you've you've ever been to uh, Eastern Arkansas, there, there's not a whole lot of a uh, no. whole lot of high ground there. So they the uh, Confederate engineers just felt that that would be a, a good place that um, you know they could bottleneck the Arkansas River. And um, I, I think the the combat troops, as you you mentioned, uh, didn't necessarily agree with that. Uh, what about who's in charge of the Confederate effort at? at in late '62, and in, in when they when they're getting ready to when they're building this fort, right? Okay. Well, after uh, um, uh, Tom, Thomas Hyman, who I mentioned early, uh, you know, <laughs> while he was uh, pretty successful in building an army, he was uh, he was greatly hated by the uh, the people and the political establishment of of Arkansas because you know he just he, he didn't care much about civil liberties or anything like that when he was building his army, so. Uh, being that unpopular, he was uh, he was uh, replaced as the commander by uh, a personal friend of Jefferson Davis, uh, Theophilus Holmes, who who was uh, really a, a horrible choice. He had uh, Holmes had performed uh, poorly at best in uh, um, the Eastern Theater, but um, uh, Davis apparently felt that he was the man to uh, to come over to the the uh, Trans Mississippi Department, you know, which is basically you know everything from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean, and and put things to right. And and Holmes, to his credit, you know, said, "I can't do it. Replace me. Don't do it." But but he was sent over to to do it anyways. So um, he became concerned about Little Rock being um, uh, threatened by the potential of uh, uh, Federals coming up the Arkansas River. And he's the one who ordered the uh, the fortification at Arkansas Post, and then there were a, a couple of other uh, forts built farther up the river that never saw any action. The uh, if there was one thing in this book that I I will have to raise my my eyebrow at, I will say your description of Holmes. Uh, you point out how bad he was in many ways and say he was going deaf, a bully to his subordinates and lacked self-confidence. Mm-hmm. All very reasonable. I have no problem with that. Uh, but you point out he's nearly 58 years old and <laughs> the next line you refer to him as the elderly general. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, my, the number one fan of the show, my mother, is, is uh, in her 90s uh, and she joins me in saying, hey, I'm, I'm almost 57. Uh, this year I will be. Uh, so I, I thought you, you young whippersnappers here uh, <laughs> need some perspective on this. But then I, 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 after double-taking at that, I thought, well, actually, for a field general in the Civil War, 57 is on the old side, isn't it? Yes, yes, and and uh, and, and Holmes was, was feeble. I mean, uh, there were uh, several accounts of people who said they, they thought he was a much older man than he, than he actually was. And, mm-hmm. and uh, bless his heart, his, uh, the soldiers nicknamed him Granny. Uh, so, so, well, now, they did that for Lee, too, didn't they, though, in West Virginia, uh, before, before he became famous. So, but, but that's, I guess, where the comparison between Holmes and Robert E. Lee stops. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, at Arkansas Post, uh, the, the union does bring to bear the, a more or less overwhelming amount of, of force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you describe the battle in, in, in narrative detail, uh, and I said it, it's an interesting story, made more interesting uh, if if you don't know how each part of it's going to turn out, as 
with the more well-worn stories we all do. Uh, did anything that you came across as you as you read the the many letters and journals and diaries that you quote here, did anything particularly surprise you about this battle? Uh, the probably just the fierceness of it. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it seems a relatively small affair. Um, um, yeah, I mean, and it, it really was overwhelming force. Thirty thousand Union troops and a fleet of gunboats up against um, five thousand uh, Confederate soldiers. But the um, j- just the intensity of the combat um, w- was um, remarkable. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from from the uh, from the chapter was a, a guy who had um, fought. He was in an Ohio unit who had fought at Shiloh and. In writing home about Arkansas Post, he said, while it lasted, Shiloh was nowhere. And that, you know, just from a veteran's perspective, I thought that was very, uh, very telling. It was also uh, significant uh, that that 5,000 troops who were lost at Arkansas Post, the, uh, at, the, at the climax of the battle when the, the Union was about to do a massive charge, some sensible uh, uh, fellows in a Texas regiment put up white flags, so the, the garrison ended up surrendering. But those 5,000 troops were, uh, were, were roughly 25% of the uh, combat troops available to the Confederacy in the Trans-Mississippi at that time. So it really was uh, a great blow to, uh, to the Confederate cause. And, and this happens in January of 63, which, uh, as you point out, is a, a low point in the war for the Union cause. You've just seen uh, Fredericksburg in the east, a draw at Stones River in uh, the middle. You've got nothing good happening on the Mississippi front toward Vicksburg. It's really uh, a bleak time in the war, and this is one of the first victories of 1863. Yeah, and and a lot of the uh, the Federals who were at Arkansas Post had just gotten uh, gotten their lunch handed to them a, a few weeks earlier at, at Chickasaw Bluffs in in Mississippi. So you know there was a, there were a lot of um, there were a tremendous amount of Union letters that came out of that uh, that campaign, and I think in in part that was because you know they were able to write home about good news. You know that they were. I mean, one guy said that uh, Arkansas Post wiped out Chickasaw Bluffs. So they they certainly regarded it as, as critical at the time. Uh, one thing else that really grabbed me about your account was, as you said a moment ago, the, the Confederates began raising white flags before the Union could launch a final and, and obviously overwhelming charge. It would, it would have swept over the whole place. Uh, what happens then, you describe the Union soldiers come forward anyway, not shooting now, mm-hmm. and the Confederates basically reach out their hands and help them up over the trenches and everybody is sort of shaking hands like slapping each uh, the, other on the back and the yeah. the end of a hard-fought football game mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i found that fascinating yeah yeah but then you also have the descriptions of the you know the carnage that took place there but it really was uh it really was interesting and it was the first combat i think that a lot of the confederates had had seen up to that uh up to that point so you know they didn't react perhaps as more veteran troops would have Perhaps not knowing what the what the protocol was. I mean, no, mm. nobody does till they're there, certainly. But it it really the, the contrast between, as you described, the carnage, uh, especially from the federal gunboats pouring these heavy shells, uh, just, just smashing apart uh, the, the poor victims, and then when it's over, when the final whistle blows, everybody maybe it's just relief. They're also glad they're not going to die that day. <laughs> that could be. Uh, 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 <laughs> But they they all all recover. So uh, 
Well, well, let me ask one other quick thing about the the gunboats in that battle. Uh, some of them were covered with slush or tallow. What what is that, and what's it supposed to do? Well, it, it was um, 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 I, I can't remember the phrase. It was like sloth or something, but but it was. Uh, um, the uh, uh, Admiral Porter, uh, the, the commander of the gunboats, had, had ordered that they take this. Uh, ba- basically, there's a bucket on every one of these gunboats where they kept grease and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had ordered them to uh, to uh, smear that stuff around the uh, around the, the uh, gun ports, and uh, you know just to see if that would help keep uh, Confederate shells from hitting. And and to a large degree, it caused them to just slide right off and go uh, go in the opposite. Uh, you know, go go off instead of you know damaging the ship. They just uh, uh, sheared off. And that was uh, that was the first time that that happened, I, I believe, in the Civil War. I'm curious, maybe one of our listeners with a, a physics background can uh, send me a message. Uh, I, I'm highly skeptical that, that a, a shell would be deflected by a layer of grease, or even have its path changed in the least. Uh, but as you, as you quote, uh, Porter and other officers thought it worked, and they, they ordered it done on a larger scale. We're going to take another short break now. It is... Uh, Civil War Talk Radio tonight. We're talking about Civil War Arkansas, 1863, the battle for a state, with Mark K. Christ. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mark K. Christ, author of Civil War Arkansas, 1863, The Battle for a State. We talked about uh, a key battle early in the year of 1863 at Arkansas Post when the Federals get a foothold on the Arkansas River and start moving uh, not inland from the Mississippi River, I suppose, yeah, to, to the west from the Mississippi into the heart of the state. Uh, there are uh, a series of battles that you describe. Uh, Helena is one, then, then there are others uh, later uh, after that Confederate counterattack. But I want to ask you uh, uh, the question about the participants in this. The one of the distinguishing things about the the Trans-Mississippi Theater, Arkansas in particular, is that uh, Indians participate in these battles, in which obviously they don't in the, the Eastern Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what role do they play in the, the fight for Arkansas? Primarily on the, on the Western border. Um, the, the, um, Fort Smith is the um, uh, last post in Arkansas before you pass into the Indian Territory. So uh, really, west of uh, west of Little Rock was more centered on uh, on Fort Smith and the Indian Territory than on pardon me than on uh, Arkansas proper. So um, on in that area, a lot of the uh, uh, Confederate troops were, were uh, Native Americans, as were uh, as were the, uh, the the federal troops, and the um, you know the the. Civil War in the Indian Territory was was particularly brutal, um, in that the you know the as the the members of the various tribes chose sides, they were often along the same lines that uh, that had been drawn uh, 25 years before during the Indian removals from, um, from from the southeastern United States. So there were you know there were a lot of old grudges that that uh, that came out and were uh, were born um, forth. In, in the fighting in that area, the, uh, the fighting in Arkansas likewise gives some insight into the African American participation in the war. You, your book uh, describes really uh, gives a good background up to 1863, but as you know, January 1, 1863 is the day that Lincoln signs the final Emancipation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. Uh, how? Uh, talk about recruiting of, of African American regiments and, and their participation. Okay, well, in uh, in Arkansas, it, it uh, the, the recruitment of, of black troops really began in uh, in Helena in uh, uh, June of uh, of '63. Uh, Lorenzo Thomas, who was the adjutant general of the armies of the United States, he had been given uh, given the task of going down the uh, Mississippi River Valley. And uh, establishing um, uh, recruiting black regiments. So in uh, in June of uh, of '63, uh, he stopped in Helena, and uh, Helena had uh, 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 huge amounts of, uh, of contraband camps surrounding him. Uh, you know, slaves from Mississippi, from from uh, Eastern Arkansas, all flocked there for the protection of the uh, of the federal garrison. So uh, he he showed up, I believe, it was on uh, on June seven, and gave a uh, gave a speech, you know, saying that he would recruit uh, black men and he would recruit uh, he w- he would give promotions to any soldiers who would would lead him. And the next day, uh, the entire regiment of the First Arkansas uh, Infantry of African descent was uh, was raised. They they would go down and and later uh, fight well at Milliken's Bend. 
Uh, but the, the first black troops to see uh, action and uh, see combat in Arkansas were the second Arkansas of uh, African descent who were uh, held a part of the Union uh, uh, left flank during the uh, Confederate attack on Helen on July 4 of that year. Let's talk a bit about that that attack that the Union is on the offensive uh, along the Mississippi. Grant is besieging Vicksburg. Uh, Arkansas Post falls to Union forces early in the year. Uh, and, and Helena, as you know, has been a Union bastion along the Mississippi and Arkansas since you know much earlier in the war. Mm-hmm. But then you have the counterattack, the, uh, the attempt to recapture Helena. Right. Was there any chance of that succeeding? Why, uh, why didn't it work? What, what happened there? Well, uh, um, Hel- Helena, as you mentioned, was is, you know it was really still the the single Union place. They, they they beat they won at Arkansas Post, but then that whole army went east of the Mississippi and uh, and and became involved in the uh, siege of Vicksburg. So the the only uh, Union stronghold in uh, in Arkansas was was Helena. Uh, which also was used as a base of operations against uh, against Vicksburg. So, Theophilus Holmes had uh, got to thinking that maybe if he attacked uh, uh, Helena, he'd be able to relieve uh, relieve the stress, the the, uh, the the pressure on Vicksburg. So, it, uh, and Helena is at the edge of Crowley's Ridge. If you if you were to look at a, a salt map of Arkansas, East Arkansas is flat except for this one speed bump. And that is uh, Crowley's Ridge. So, you know, there is high ground surrounding the town of Helena. And uh, Benjamin Prentice, who is the commander there, had been the uh, commander at the Hornet's Nest at Shiloh. So he had great respect for, uh, for, for you know, strong positions. And he had uh, ordered the, um, the, the high ground surrounding Helena to be fortified with, uh, with, with these uh, battery sites that could... Um, uh, Command the roads leading into town, and also, uh, uh, you know, protect each other if an individual place became uh, came under attack. So Holmes's uh, Holmes's plan was to uh, was to attack three of the uh, uh, battery sites simultaneously, overwhelm them, take Helena, and you know, then you know, own Helena for a while. Um, the Yanks knew he was coming. They had uh, they had cut down trees so he couldn't bring his artillery in. But he uh, uh, ordered the attack anyways, and fatally ordered it to begin at uh, at daylight, which two of the uh, three commanding officers took to to be first light, which they attacked at first light and were were beaten in detail. Uh, the third commander, Sterling Price, who I, I could talk about all night, uh, uh, <laughs> decided not to uh, uh, listen to the sounds of combat around him, but instead to interpret it as uh, daylight as dawn. So while he could hear the thunder of battle from the north and south of him, he didn't uh, begin his attack on the center until, uh, until Holmes finally showed up and said, get out there and attack. And they, they actually were the only uh, um, Confederate forces to take their uh, take their objective that day. They overran Battery C, but because the other attacks had ended, all the the uh, cannon on the other side, uh, the other two, uh, the other three batteries, uh, Fort Curtis in uh, Helena itself, and then the uh, the the timberclad gunboat, uh, uh, the Tyler on the Mississippi, just poured all of their fire onto uh, Battery C and just uh, just slaughtered uh, Price's men. So you know, by by uh, ten o'clock, Holmes had uh, called the battle off, and 
and I, ironically, the battle took place on July 4, and with the, with the goal of uh, easing the pressure on uh, Vicksburg, which, as as you all know, uh, surrendered on that same day. So in addition to Gettysburg and Vicksburg, uh, lesser-known third victory that same two-day span is at Helena for the Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I'm jumping around a bit. I thoroughly enjoyed this book, and, and it is, as the, uh, the back cover says, it is pure narrative military history and really uh, well executed at that. The, uh, the cover has a painting that struck me. I first thought, oh, he's just one of those modern Don Triani paintings. Uh, not that I have anything against them, but uh, you know, historical illustrations are always good. Uh, tell us what this... It's a picture of a Union regiment marching up a hill uh, past a house. Uh, can you talk about this painting? Right. Yes, yeah. And in, in fact, it's it's one of my favorite paintings. Um, uh, it, it, the uh, painting depi- depicts the uh, the Third Minnesota Infantry uh, entering Little Rock on uh, uh, September 11, 1863. Uh, and the the building that you see there is is actually the old State House, the uh, the, the the capital of the state. Um, the state of Minnesota didn't. Uh, field that many regiments, but you know they they um, after the war was over the the state commissioned an official portrait for for each uh, regiment to hang in the state capitol and uh, you know uh, of course the the first Minnesota you know depicted their famous charge at Gettysburg where they were mm-hmm. just about wiped out but the uh, but the third chose the uh, the entry into um, into Little Rock, uh, they became the uh, provost uh, for, for the uh, for the capital, and um, um, in fact, one of the best photographs of the Civil War in Arkansas is, is a, uh, a likeness of the regiment um, uh, at, standing at, at arms in front of the old state house. So it's a it's a great picture. I think it was uh, painted in 1912 by a guy named Stanley Arthur's. Well, I well I. I was really taken by it. It is a, a very interesting painting, and there's there's a lot of detail in it. Uh, it, it tells a lot of stories, uh, as, as a narrative, good narrative painting can do. But I was struck when I looked on the back, saw, oh, this is the Third Minnesota. Uh, there, the Third Minnesota are old historical friends of mine from uh, uh, writing an article about their mishap at Murfreesboro mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Uh, 1862. They were captured whole along with the 9th Michigan uh, by Nathan Bedford Forrest in a absolute comedy of, of errors, like yeah. a tragedy of errors, really. Uh, and and I, I lost track of them at that point. Having written about them there, I, I didn't follow up. I was writing about the Army of the Ohio. And so when I saw them here, I said, oh, I remember those guys. They got captured mm-hmm. and paroled. I, I guess they, they did well after all. So uh, right. how, did, how did they come to enter uh, Little Rock? Did well, they, the, um, the, after being captured by Forrest, they, they were actually sent back to Minnesota. And the 3rd Minnesota, uh, Minnesota was part of the force that, uh, that fought the Sioux Indians during the uprising in, uh, in Minnesota in the winter of, uh, of 63. Or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 62. Uh, after, after that was over, they came down. They were at um, they were at uh, among the forces opposing Vicksburg, and after Vicksburg fell, and the um, um, the Union decided it was time to go ahead and uh, uh, capture Little Rock, bring a fourth Confederate capital under um, 
under Union control, they were some of the uh, Vicksburg forces that that were sent over to Arkansas and would serve here until uh, until uh, 1864. So, did the Confederates defend Little Rock? Did was there another battle the size of uh, Helena or Arkansas Post? Uh, well, there, there, there was some fighting. Uh, uh, one Confederate said uh, Little Rock was lost at the Battle of Helena, and I, and I tend to agree with him on that. Uh, the morale was just horrible after uh, you know they suffered uh, uh, heavy casualties at Helena. Uh, the infantry began just deserting by scores, and uh, so so when when the uh, Union army came toward uh, toward Little Rock, it was almost all of the fighting was done by the uh, by the cavalry. Uh, our our friend Sterling Price uh, decided to fortify the high ground on the north side of the Arkansas, across from Little Rock, in, in the hopes that the uh, that the Federals would uh, dash themselves to pieces against his works as obligingly as the Confederates had at Helena. But uh, uh, Frederick Steele, the Federal commander, was a, a far more uh, clever general than that. So he actually crossed the uh, the Arkansas at an oxbow uh, east of the of the capital. Uh, the Confederates did send some cavalry out there uh, near what's now the, the Little Rock Airport, and there was a, a sharp fight there. But once, uh, once Steele had crossed the Arkansas, um, uh, Price abandoned his works north of the uh, north of the Arkansas River because he didn't want to get bottled up like Pemberton had been at uh, at Vicksburg, and retreated to the uh, southwest part of the state. Where uh, up until his uh, doomed raid in, into uh, Missouri the next year, the Confederates were pretty much bottled up for the for the duration. Well, there are other interesting uh, stories, battles, and campaigns in, in the rest of 1863 Arkansas, but unfortunately we're out of time. Listeners, you'll want to get a copy of this. Uh, if you like uh, pure narrative military history, you will like this. I know I did. Uh, it's called Civil War Arkansas, 1863, The Battle for a State by Mark Christ. Mark, thanks for being on the show tonight. It's been a pleasure, Jerry. Thanks for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.